0: regular hours episode 125 for august 18th 2020 i'm steve foder i'm and flood and i'm pam and we are here with devil in the white city eric larson's new york times bestseller from 2003 this is part two of this wonderful story that boy boy oh boy i should not be enjoying this this much pam
1: <laughs> now, who am I to judge people's enjoyment of literary works?
0: So dark, so dark it will get. <laughs> it is, and this is a pretty dark part, but yes, you're right. We anticipate that part three is going to be even more darkness, but we get so much great narrative about these two different parts of this time period the World's Fair. And this serial killer mounting these huge projects and seeing them through to completion here.
1: I love how you consider serial killing a huge project to be seen through to completion. He's
0: building a hotel, <laughs> a murder <laughs> hotel. Oh, There's a huge <laughs> construction project happening for murder. It, it, it's des- and that's where the part of
2: it is. It's, it's premeditated. It's designed to confuse and uh, make it easier to kill. And dispose of the uh, corpses.
0: hmm So, one of my favorite quotes from this part, The public will regard the work as entirely done, and I wish it were. For as far as I'm concerned, I presume anyone running a race has moments of half despair, along toward the end, but they must never be yielded to. I think we can all identify with the idea of this is a big big project that Daniel Burnham is in the middle of, and he's getting a little frustrated at this point in the construction.
1: And Steve, as you and I are preparing our big projects of teaching our classes in entirely new ways for the 2021 year, I think there come moments where you get just so overwhelmed that you're almost paralyzed by the amount of work that you have to do in really any endeavor just you and i share a shared endeavor right now and i like that metaphor of the race as a fairly new runner myself i definitely know exactly what he means where you're like i don't like running why did i ever think i liked running this is horrible and so so that notion of like working through of perseverance and resiliency because whoo a lot of things happened in this part that require a lot of resiliency and a lot of optimism that this can actually be completed.
2: I think you just hit right there, the optimism that the project will be completed and will be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And Burnham works real hard. He, there's plenty of opportunities for him to throw down and just say, I can't, I can't do this because we're, as we're going to see, we're going to have buildings collapse and roofs collapse and, and the things are built and uh, destroyed. Uh, just everything you can imagine being a problem. And, uh, you know, our, our every other chapter guy, H.H. Holmes seems to have a different way of dealing with it because, you know, he just doesn't have a conscience.
0: (laughs) It's certainly the psychopath way of looking at things where his conscience does not play into the narrative at all. Eric Larson does not mention any kind of thinking of Holmes is where he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. It's, it's he's very, he's very focused.
2: Well, in fact, I didn't even really consider this until you guys wrote this down, but you're right. We've got two great big projects. This entire second uh, section that that we read for this week is about these two men basically have a completion date and what they need to do with it. And one's for you know pleasure and goodness, and the other one is is certainly. Um, for the dark side of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. So we see the dark side from Holmes's moves in Part 2. He has several more women who he has uh, disappeared in Part 2, and one child. Well, they, they go away, Steve. They, mm-hmm. um, they get married, they, they go to California. They do
2: all sorts of stuff, don't mm-hmm. they?
0: So the question becomes you know, what, where are we on the narrative style of this murder, Pam?
1: Well, I was really fascinated by the Christmas Eve murder, right? Which I think is, this is the one that gets described in the most detail. And I kind of wanted to ask you, so thinking about like how this is narrated. So Julia is pregnant. Holmes says that she has to have an abortion if she wants him to marry her, which I find a curious, you know, uh, approach. And she agrees to the abortion, which I also found interesting since she's already a mother. So I feel like that's a that's a really interesting moment. And for me, this whole scene, the buildup as well as the narration of the scene makes me think of the genre that I study because I don't study true crime at all. I study detective fiction and we have spent the last 120 odd days reading detective fiction, where we see this kind of scene through the eyes of the detective, right? So our reader identification is with Watson and Holmes looking at a crime after it's been committed or every once in a while preventing one from being committed. But here, like, where is the reader identification? So I wanted to look at two quotes from this scene because I think they're very interesting. First of all, so this is the night, Christmas Eve, the night that he is about to give her the abortion, which she has apparently agreed to in exchange for marriage. A table lay draped in white linens. His surgical kit stood open and gleaming, his instruments laid out in a sunflower of polished steel. Fearful things, bone saws, abdomen retractor, trocar and trapan. More instruments certainly than he really needed and all positioned so that Julia could not help but see them and be sickened by their hard, eager gleam. What do you guys make of that quote? Like, what, what what goes through your mind as you're reading that?
2: This right here is um, theater. He, he is creating a very scary scene for, you know, a very scary act. So he, he certainly wants something much greater than it is. If you wanted to play it in a lighthearted way, if you think of, like, Little Shop of Horrors, the movie where uh, Bill Murray's character comes in and visits... Um, Uh, Steve Martin's character. There's a lot of play in the same way. The difference is, is this is a very serious
0: event that will be ultimately a murder. I agree with you. I have a lot more experience with dental instruments being laid out in front of me than surgical instruments, and and I went to that same idea in my head. I think you are giving the narrator and the writer here a lot of credit for the setting the scene. The the murderer certainly set the scene here too, but I think the the narrative structure of this is for us. Well, and, and the writer has
2: to set this up. I mean, it wasn't like there was a, a camera in there or he was documenting what he was doing, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has to be part of the writer kind of, We know this happens. These events are happening. Let me create a scary scene.
0: The embellishment of the police report into these great words. Eager gleam is a great turn of phrase. Terrifying, but eager.
1: And the sunflower of polished steel. This sort of aestheticization of a horror scene. Again, I don't want to belabor the point that we made last week. That uh, true crime is like a very um, is a is a genre that has some ethical complexities to it, but this notion of setting this up as an aesthetic moment is really interesting, and feels very different in a true crime story than in a detective story.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. The this is a narrative. That again, if you didn't know this was real, you could assume that this was made up by the authors because the author's words, those metaphors that he's using, certainly were not in the police reports. This is certainly his writing talent here.
1: The other scene I wanted to look at is when Holmes gives Julia chloroform. She gripped his hand more tightly, which she found singularly arousing. He held the cloth over her nose and mouth. Her eyes fluttered and rolled upward. Then came the inevitable reflexive disturbance of muscles, like a dream of running. I thought that was really interesting because, like, who are we supposed to identify with here? As a reader, am I with Holmes? Am I with Julia? What's my reaction supposed to be? Disgust or pleasure? I mean, it's a very interesting scene, I think.
2: Well, I I actually was walking while I was listening to this scene, and it was nighttime, and it's raining, and um, I'm, <laughs> I mean, it was, this was a pretty dark scene for me to, to deal with. And I, I, I kept, what I was, kept thinking of, this is like a horror movie where I'm just watching this madman, this Holmes, and this is, he's setting this thing up, and, and he just, you know, he took the uh, chloroform, he placed it over her uh, mouth, and, and, and all this happens, And um, she is truly
0: there, and we're just to watch her die, is really the way Mm -hmm. I was reading this. But unlike a horror movie, we do get feelings from the murderer. His arousal at the idea of this murder is disturbing. Disturbing, something we don't get out of Michael Myers or t- Freddy Krueger. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit out of Freddy Krueger. We might get a little bit of his viewpoint. Think, think of a little more like Hannibal Lecter, uh, uh-huh.
2: where, you know... The, you know, the just, mind. It, yeah, it's... But it's again, certain...
1: because, because there's a detective in that, the the story of Hannibal Lecter is actually mediated through the investigation.
2: Sure. That,
1: our reader identification is with a detective clearly wanting Hannibal to get caught, mm-hmm. too, right? And so here it's like, where's our reader identification supposed to be? It's very interesting.
0: Oh, I think so too. I think it's pretty equal between the two characters. I think that our, that Larson has given us the viewpoint of both characters very equally here. Sure, well, and I and I should also mention
2: that Larson, in his preparation. For the research to write this book, he looked at Truman Capote's *In Cold Blood* as sort of a, uh, a blueprint of maybe how to, to create this story. And so, I th- you know, there's another story where where there's just a lot of details that the writer has to to provide that may or may not be, you know, as true as they could be.
0: So Holmes does kill Julia. And we find out that he has her skeleton turned into a hanging skeleton in a doctor's office somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's a little bit disturbing. Very. (laughs) And I think it speaks to this notion that at this time, and I suppose I shouldn't, you know, put a bracket around that, uh, there's this notion that life is expendable, especially the lives of women and of working men, because we do see quite a number of accidents in the building of the fair at the same time. And I think it's interesting that he does give some background about the 1890s perspective on how corpses get used in medical research. And there's one quote that I wanted to to, to look at here too. Uh, During his own medical education, Holmes had seen firsthand how desperate schools were to acquire corpses, whether freshly dead or skeletonized. The serious systematic study of medicine was intensifying. And to scientists, the human body was like the polar ice cap, something to be studied and explored. Skeletons hung in doctor's offices where they served as visual encyclopedias. With demand outpacing supply, doctors established a custom of graciously and discreetly accepting any offered cadaver. They frowned on murder as a means of harvest. On the other hand, they made little effort to explore the provenance of any one body. Grave robbing became an industry, albeit a small one, requiring an exceptional degree of sang-froid. In periods of acute shortage, doctors themselves helped mine the newly departed. Now, I thought the, 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 uh, the phrasing there was very funny, this idea of mining graveyards for Mm -hmm. fresh corpses. Now, this is very fascinating, right? Do you guys, and I, I think it raises an ethical question. Do you guys think it's wrong for doctors to accept corpses without asking too many questions? I mean, after all, it's for the public good. They're really trying to make huge advances in medicine that are gonna benefit the entire society. Is it really so wrong to participate in a little mining of the graveyards themselves?
2: Well, are, are you talking about today or at that time or that time, the, in,
1: 18, in the 1890s? What do you think?
2: Well, I mean, today we've we've solved that. Right. Because, you know, on your driver's license, you, you have that ability to to give your body for research. Yeah. Um, and we and, also and,
1: have a pretty good idea of how the human body works compared to one hundred and thirty years ago.
2: but I mean, but if you're in medical school, you're still working on cadavers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's just part of what it is. at At that time, I mean, we you can just see that, you know, certainly it, it is a, a different time. And um, it just seems so interesting that, I mean, the the part we mentioned is, what, wasn't he part of like Kentucky, University of Kentucky, they were going to Louisville and they, they were talking about the asylum graveyard. There's not even a body left in it because basically if somebody dies, they bury them. And then like the next day, the, uh, the medical students come dig them up and, or dig the person up and, and send them off. I, I, um, the dead's dead. And it's, a lot of it has to do with maybe a religious background or what mm-hmm. you think ends up happening to the body. When it's passed. I mean, you can look, think about, you know, Egyptians took incredible amount of dedication on on how to work with the wealthy person or a king's, uh, a Pharaoh's body. Um, But was the
0: everyday Joe treated that well?
2: Well, I don't know. I don't know uh, if that was the case.
0: But the morality of the doctors accepting bodies without asking any questions—that is certainly morally dubious. You know, is there a mystery to be solved? Is there a family looking for this person who has been disappeared? You know, the Crows, that family that was expecting to spend Christmas with Julia and Pearl—are they? hurt by her disappearance and should a doctor have at least raised a question at at that time it was
2: it was a different time i mean you could be in an area steve imagine going on the vacation you you went on this summer where you went away Mm -hmm. yeah but you you don't have fingerprints you don't have anything you you just died Mm -hmm. um how do they identify you well if there's a use for you Maybe, maybe the doctors, maybe the medical school ends up using you.
0: Finally. I, Finally, I, I'm useful.
1: Wow, thanks, Chip, for that really <laughs> personal uh, example.
0: Well, I, I, I used that. Of
1: an unidentified body belonging <laughs> to our friend Steve. That was nice. That's um, <laughs> I just want to jump make in it
2: make, it make it dark. Make it dark,
1: Chip. <laughs> I just want to jump in here and say, in the 1890s, perhaps more than any other period, we have this really hard fought epistemological conflict between science and religion. This idea of like, how do we know what we know because the late Victorian period is really a time of huge shifts. We're still thinking about what Charles Darwin's origin of species means to our understanding of science and medicine. So I just love that Larson goes into this. It's such a cool and interesting question that, literary figures as well as philosophers are dealing with at this time It also this gives us an idea like 130 years later just as you were saying chip we have totally different notions of informed consent where do we get bodies from and you have to make a choice for your own body what's Mm going to happen to it in terms of science and medical research and and science has just changed so much so anyway it's kind of a small point that he makes but i think he makes it really well
2: Oh, I think so too. We get another um, introduction to Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. And this is um, uh, exploration of how landscaping is the attempt is to try to take it and make it a fine art. And a fine art would be something like um, uh, performance work, it could be um, a book, Um, it could be um, architecture, but this is really taking nature and, you know, willing it to the the whims of, of a human. And Olmsted uh, certainly spent a lot of effort thinking about this and, and arguing that this is a fine art. I'm going to uh, mention a few things about him. One, he was not trained as a landscape architect. This was his skill and the reason why he ultimately received his first contract, which interestingly enough was Central Park in New York, was he understood the land that was being given to them. And the second part, he was very good at handling large projects. So, you know, if you, if you ever wanted to know uh, if you could be a generalist and do something amazing, um, certainly Olmsted is a, an example of a person who was very good at being given the challenge, thinking it through, and then finding a strategy on dealing with it. Now, he had a lot of different factions working with him as when we were dealing with Central Park. And part of it was that there are formal gardens like the ones in Germany and in France. And then there are more natural gardens which are the more of the English gardens. And he looked at the landscape and he, if you look at Central Park, he actually has a mixture of both of those in that. And the other part is he had to do some research. So Homestead did travel a lot and he was not a wealthy man, but he visited a lot of the European gardens. So he was familiar with uh, the the processes and the, and the techniques. And he gained inspiration from visiting those. And I'm going to just list a few things he was working on before. And then after he uh, finished this World's Fair in 1893. So he, Central Park, New York, Prospect Park, which is in Brooklyn. And I think that was, if I remember, that was his favorite. The Emerald Necklace that was in the Boston area which is a series of parks, Mount Royal in Montreal, and I actually pulled out a little quote here. Olmsted decided that he would emphasize the area's mountainous topography. So he looked at what was available to him naturally, and then he decided to do a little bit with it. He would exaggerate the vegetation, and he would use the shade trees at the bottom of the carriage pass so that climbs to the mountain. He wanted to ultimately have it resemble a valley. And so there is where architecture works, uh, the landscape architecture sort of works as art because Central Park was an incredible example of using just techniques to give you uh, this, this idea that there's much more land where your eye goes. Um, is it, uh, are you in the wild or are you in the middle of a city? But all this is purposeful. And if you've ever been to a theme park, you certainly uh, have seen a lot of these uh, strategies. So Stanford University was also one of the projects he worked for. He worked with Leland Stanford as they were establishing the school. He had a lot of arguments with them. And as he's working on the World's Fair, Olmsted was also working on the Biltmore Estate, which is in Nashville, North Carolina, which was the largest residence in the United States, privately owned residence at the time. It was built by George Washington Vanderbilt II between 1889 and 1895. They decided, Vanderbilt and Olmsted, that they would plant the forest. They would make a forest around the, um, the house and ultimately, because of their work, they established the United States' first forest school. And so, if you think of forest or trees, almost like you think of planting corn or something like that, that was exactly what they did, uh, chose to do. And many of these things were being done at the same time that um, he's working on this. Um, Uh, world's fair that you know it just seems like you can get some of the parts in and then they get destroyed with you know carriages running over
0: it or any number of national and the weather again the weather played a big part into what plants they had available yeah
2: so april 26 2022 marks the bicentennial for the birth of frederick law Olmsted and so there's going to be an olmstead 200 celebration that's going to start um, I, you know, in April of 2021. So wow. that's, so this is history that you can, you can um, experience. And so there's the National Association of Olmstead Parks that will coordinate a lot of the celebrations. but uh, keep a lookout because this is a fascinating person who certainly had a tremendous impact on our park system and how we view landscaping right now.
0: And you brought up the idea of the theme parks, and we think that there's certainly something, a spark here in this World's Fair that started the idea of the landscaping for theme parks afterwards, and the building, too. It's interesting that Elias Disney, Walt's dad, was one of the people putting together this World's Fair in Chicago in 1893.
1: Yeah, I... I So much from this book, I definitely did not realize that. That's super interesting.
2: And if you think about how much work that was put into putting this thing together, only to tear it down, you could see where, you know, like, well, if we're going to take the time to build this, (laughs) why don't we just keep it around? And there you get, um, well, I I grew up in in North Carolina, so we had bush Gardens. We had bush Gardens in Virginia. And, and that was, it's almost all parks. It's almost, a lot of it's just hidden inside. And if you've ever been to a Disney park, you can see the power of, of you know, how they, you know, plant the trees and how, where the flowers go and sort of how they use those kinds of strategies to create private areas in usually a very small acreage.
0: And it's so interesting to look at all of the different people who have put these things together over the years. And we have a very interesting uh, architect in this story that gets added in part two, huh, Pam?
1: Well, I thought this was fascinating. So I love that they create a woman's building that's separate from all of the other buildings. And of course, to create a woman's building, you want to hire a woman architect. Hmm. And so they had a competition. They were paying a woman architect $1,000 instead of the $10,000 that each of the male architects received. She designed the women's building. And I think it's funny because I feel like today we wouldn't really expect a separate women's building, right? And we wouldn't expect that only a woman architect would be able to design such a thing. But this is pretty typical of the 19th century where you have, you know, written in 1888, you have Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, which is one of the great American utopias that has women totally separate, like in a utopian world, men and women would have completely separate workplaces. And so this is very typical. Women detectives were employed specifically so that they could interact with female suspects and they could do interviews of any kind of women witnesses or suspects the women's building contained exhibits of work from women across a bunch of fields and fine arts and literature and music science home economics but it's not only about like a celebration of women's achievement it's also there's something about separating out women's and men's achievements it was interesting i did a little bit of research that the women's building was next to the children's building which didn't include fine art by children, but rather exhibited American 19th century best practices for child rearing and education. So this is another place. And it
0: was designed by children.
1: I, I know, right? No? Exactly. Is
0: that not how that works?
1: <laughs> um, because it was annexed to the woman's building, I'm guessing it was designed by our $1,000 paid woman architect as well.
0: One-tenth the, right? the amount that the men get. Going yeah.
1: Rate. Mm. But... Here's a place where I think just like when we look at how people thought about donating your body to science or stealing bodies from the grave, this is a place where sometimes I think we think, oh, you know, nothing ever changes. Oh, you know what? This has changed a lot in 130 years because we are before women having the vote when this this World's Fair uh, occurs, and you can kind of tell by the treatment of women. I'm thinking. What I have to
2: say about that. I just watched a, a presentation on the first woman design automobile, or person. Maybe she was in charge of uh, design for Ford Motor Company, but the first vehicle that came out of that was the Ford Probe, and it was all the research she did to show all the other men engineers on what a woman would want in an automobile. And Mm -hmm. if you think maybe from the mid 80s, and if you look up the Ford probe, you can see this automobile. So she had them put on nails and talk about how the door handles open and what they sound like, how the button should press and where things should be located. Because many times when you're building an automobile, you're building it for this mythical person that is not male, not female. It's just this person, and if you've ever been in an automobile that fits you incorrectly, it's too big or too small, then you, you recognize like, oh, there, there should be some real thought put into this. But anyway, it's, it's interesting that that is, it's roughly 100 years later when we get our first woman design automobile.
0: Hmm perspective. It's all about perspective. I say it every day of my life. And the idea of what you need, because you know your needs, and the needs of everybody else in the world might be different from what you need. That's that's an interesting... Homer Simpson designed a car too. It was awesome.
2: (laughs) Well, you used the word perspective, Steve. And uh, it seems like that they were still trying to figure out how they could uh, top Paris's you know, Eiffel
0: Tower. Yeah. And I think they found a, a way to gain some perspective, Steve. There was a lot of conversation in this part about out-Eiffeling Eiffel here, because the Eiffel Tower certainly still to this day is a symbol of that World's Fair that came before this World's Fair in 1893. And we in Chicago, we got the Ferris wheel out of that. Which I knew, but may have forgotten, or maybe you didn't know, but
2: I mean, ferris wheels are in fact, ferris wheels in cities seem to be
0: uh everywhere now. The London eye comes to mind that huge, enormous Ferris wheel in London is is a symbol of that engineering. And the idea of it, that we have this original Ferris wheel designed by George Ferris as the centerpiece of this fair, was a phenomenal part of this story. George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. How about that? That's a name. That is a real name right there. That's a man's name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought the stats on this were fascinating, right? So the wheel rotated on a 71-ton, 45.5-foot-long axle comprising what was at the time the world's largest hollow forging manufactured in Pittsburgh, and this thing weighed 89,000 pounds.
0: That's amazing. Two
1: 16-foot diameter cast-iron spiders weighing 53,000 pounds. It's just astonishing, right?
0: It's just enormous. The enormity of it is is mentioned very well in this part. There were 36 passenger cars, each fitted with 40 revolving chairs and able to accommodate up to 60 people, giving a total capacity of 2,160 people on this Ferris wheel. This is enormous. But, but I'm going to pay on- only 35
2: of them were, were able to be used because there was a band that was on that one <laughs> that one, <laughs> and those people that was their job to go around the Ferris wheel and play music
0: <laughs> how
2: interesting
1: <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> they had to have no fear of heights my friends <laughs> and no fear of bad engineering <laughs>
2: oh no kidding
0: Oh, can you imagine? Larson talks here about the very, very, very tight specifications that every piece of this needed to be exact, or it would be a huge tragedy if this thing came crashing down.
1: Now, I, of course, am a great fan of Nathaniel Hawthorne, so I was delighted to see mention of his son, Julian, who was amazed that anything of such a size, quote, could continue to keep itself erect. It has no visible means of support, none that appear adequate. The spokes look like cobwebs. They are after the fashion of those on the newest make of bicycles." And so again, the importance of the bicycle in the 19th century as a means of transportation, but also just as giving people new options because they can move around more easily. And then that same engineering principle, just like, whew, expanded to this huge, huge, dominating figure in the world's fair
2: so your dinner conversation is did the ferris wheel out eiffel eiffel
0: boy um the eiffel tower still stands to this day as a singular symbol but ferris wheels are around the world so i would say yes they they certainly made a statement didn't they and and the, the enormity of this Wow! Just, just the—I can't wrap my mind around these train-sized cars that are going around in a circle in the air, and the the peril that these people are in, and the engineering that it took to keep this going. Well, if you've gone, all right. So
2: Chicago does not have this Ferris wheel today. They rebuilt a Ferris wheel over by Navy Pier, which is a, mm-hmm. a, a massive uh, Ferris wheel too. It's mm-hmm. very slow. Your family gets on it, and you go around. It really is. I mean, for for a family, it's 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 a nice thing to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So this comes back to the challenges that were a part of this giant project. This giant Ferris wheel was certainly one of the many big things that needed to happen to make this fair. Successful.
2: I think the author does a really good job at describing the challenges because every time you think you you've got something, it's up, it looks like it's running on schedule and it's working. You know, they didn't you know uh, properly think about the wind whipping across Lake Michigan and walls are popping down. You know, falling down to great big buildings and these are temporary buildings, but they're supposed to last you know for a couple of years, and so they had to bring in people to redesign for stability. And so they get that all set up and then, you know, all of a sudden there's a big snowstorm and a roof caves in. And so you're like, oh, well, okay, now we get to rebuild this. Well, the, the fair's opening in a month or two months. You've got to redo everything. And um that brought into in my opinion a lot of the the ideas of, of the labor challenges they had. And so initially um it sounds like they're paid well, they're housed and fed well. But they run out of budget, and you know, and so they got to start firing everybody. When things happen, like uh, like walls falling down or a roof caving in, they have to hire people and they have to work them overtime, which obviously puts those people in, in some real challenging situations. And uh, eventually, the labor just says, "Hey, we're we're going to have a strike over this." And this may be the birth of what the modern uh, labor movement is in the United States. What do you think?
0: I think that there's certainly some workers' rights issues that were raised here for the first time, and we certainly saw some deals that needed to be made to make all this happen, because everybody agreed that this fair was important, and those deals had to be made. Well, I mean, we, we, when we were reading the Sherlock Holmes
2: story that took place in Pennsylvania with the coal mines... I mean certainly those labor issues were you know going on so this was certainly very topical of the time labor made a deal with the committee that that put on this fair and that deal became a blueprint that would be used for other types of deals later on with between uh, industries and their workers
0: Mm -hmm. and Back to the peril of these workers, we did have some stories of the workers being hurt, but very, very few, a, a shockingly low number of people were injured in this building process that was definitely accelerated. I mean, we are trying to build this whole town in three years, and it's its pretty amazing that we don't get more stories of injuries, Boy, there's there's some really bad stories of the Panama Canal, for instance, mm-hmm. where a lot of people got injured, and we don't see that nearly as much here. Uh, luckily, there's a serial killer running around. Well, you know, you never know, though, if they were injured or died. Steve, uh,
2: they, their bodies have been stolen. <laughs> that's so. True,
0: that's true. We <laughs> might just not know that data. You are absolutely right about that. And
2: you know, interesting enough, they had you know a, uh, a disposal uh, hotel in, <laughs> across <laughs> that they could get rid of any evidence.
1: <laughs>
2: go dark, Chip, Go dark.
1: <laughs> Which brings us to the ending of part two, and you guys know my love of endings. Yes. Um. And I think this is a pretty good ending. I don't know what you guys
0: thought. But. Oh, this is really good writing. I Again, I brought this book to the book club, and I am very happy to hear that you guys are enjoying this as much as you are, because Eric Larson's writing is spectacular here.
1: So he, he ends this section. Later that Sunday night, as rain thumped their window sills, editors of Chicago's morning dailies laid out bold and elaborate headlines for Monday's historic editions. Not since the Chicago Fire of 1871 had the city's newspapers been so galvanized by a single event. But there was more quotidian work to be done as well. The more junior typesetters leaded and shimmed the classifieds and personals and all the other advertisements that filled the inside pages. Some that night worked on a small notice announcing the opening of a new hotel, clearly another hastily built affair meant to capitalize on the expected crush of exposition visitors. This hotel, at least, seemed to be well located at 63rd and Wallace in Englewood, a short ride on the new Alley L from the fair's 63rd Street gate. The owner called it the World's Fair Hotel. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's this hotel, and so I love how we see this. We see this through the eyes of people writing the newspaper, right? Mm-hmm. And you kind of feel like you'd like to see the microfilm of those early editions with the giant headlines. What did they say? So much excitement, so much enthusiasm. And then this little thing that nobody notices, which is, oh, we have a little murder hotel in our town. It's very well located. It's a great ending. <laughs>
2: One star reviews from TripAdvisors.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, people are people are dying to get there. You know, things like oh that. <laughs> all of those all of those reviews disappeared mysteriously. Don't worry. <laughs> never
2: never arrived where they were going. They just they show up and don't go, don't go anywhere.
0: So the scene is definitely set for part three here, where we are pretty sure we are going to see the, the real dark side of this story. Oh yeah, this is going to get real,
2: real dark. I, I think Larson does a masterful job at giving us enough background and setting up the scene. This um, World's Fair is going to open and this, um, I guess, murder king is going to make it happen.
0: Uh, it's going to get ugly and the narrative the narrative part where i am interested i'm ready for part three to get started Mm -hmm. that's good writing i don't know chip i think we have enough information to survive another week what do you think only if we can come back next week steve pam can we come back next
1: week i think we have to part three of devil in the white city
0: wonderful we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear how you're doing with your reading assignments. How's school going? How's uh, uh, your your giant projects that you have been putting together for the last 157 days? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is eight zero five four one zero four eight six seven. Our website is hours dot com. Our email is sandwichesatirregularhours at gmail dot com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and you. YouTube so you can check us out on all of those ways that you listen to podcasts. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at a Regular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip and Flood.
1: And I'm Pam Bedore. People. We'll see you in the future.
0: in the future if you don't disappear first well i was going to say that this is the monster of the midway <laughs> oh boy h.h H. holmes the monster of the midway
1: Ooh, that's good
0: Ooh, chills